Greetings, and welcome to the Tapestry Podcast. My name is Chris Turner. Tapestry is the adoption and foster care ministry of Irving Bible Church in Irving, Texas. Joining me today are Ryan and Kayla North. How are you guys? Good. Hey, Chris. How are you? Doing well. Great. I wanted to continue our discussion from last time about back to school, and this time focus on the importance of teachers. Since teachers are inserted into our kids' stories, we need to welcome them into that story while at the same time protecting our children and the other people in their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that this was a really important topic we needed to focus on. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think when our kids go to a classroom, we either fall into one extreme or the other. Either we want to tell our kids' teacher everything about them so that they have compassion and empathy for our kids, mm-hmm. or we don't want to tell them anything in hopes that maybe this will be the year that they won't have any trouble in class and it won't prejudice the teacher. Right. You know? Um, so I think we kind of need to find the happy medium in between that. Um, because I don't think our kids' teachers need to know every single detail about our kids' story. I mean, there are just some details that our kids may not even know yet. I mean, Mm -hmm. we may not have, have shared those details with our kids yet. We want our kids to be the first to know about their story and we don't want to, share things with their teacher. But if your child struggles with um, attention, then that might be something that you need to say, you know, because of my child's early history, Mm -hmm. they really struggle and need to have frequent breaks or, you know, things like that. So we can tell bits and pieces of our kid's story and maybe even the pieces of the story that we tell are just simply that, you know, my child was not born into my family Right, And so there are some unknowns about the early development of my child. And that can be the extent to what we tell them. Mm -hmm. But we don't need to go into all the details of, you know, whatever we know about our child's history with the teacher. I think one of the things you have to be careful is not assign malice to people. And one of the people we need to um, be really careful of is parents. And, And by that, I mean ourselves. Because one of the traps we can fall into is... And I know we've we've fallen into this many many years ago, is that if you will just tell enough of your child's story, it becomes a compelling enough story that people want to be empathetic towards your children. Mm-hmm. And while that sounds like a really great reason, it's not the right thing to do. You know, we 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 are now such firm believers in protecting your child's story that there are parts of our children's histories that my parents and Kayla's parents don't even know because mm-hmm. we don't talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. That is the privilege of my child. And if they one day want to share it with their grandparents, they are welcome to do that. Part of why they are not in a position today to share that is because they don't know it yet themselves. And mm-hmm. so as they get older and develop more and are able to come to terms with some of that, because we, we become the guardians of our kids' stories right. the day they arrive in our families. And so, I mean, the, the teacher thing is hard because we can't assign malice to people. They're just trying to do the best by their kids. And right. they just think, well, if, I, if they just knew the struggles my child has faced, if they just knew some of the tragedy that makes up their history, then they will just agree to everything and make every accommodation. And the reality is that you can tell them every detail of your child's story. But there is no practical way for a classroom teacher to accommodate every request of every parent. So that's why it's so, so important that you guard your child's story. And like you said, Chris, um, that teacher for that calendar year is 
is a central character now that's inserted into your child's story based on the amount of time they spent together. Right. But you still have to be appropriate with that because there are a couple of guidelines that, that we have. Number one, if my child was in the room, would I share this? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is no, then you shouldn't share it. Right. And the other guideline we have is, would I want my child learning this piece of information from their school teacher before they learn it from me? And yeah, you run you run that risk you run the risk of doing that right. when you share too much. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we have to consider is when do we tell the teacher information? Right. Because as a classroom teacher, I like to start the year with a clean slate with each kid, right? right. I mean, I like to not really know a ton about them. Because then it helps me form my own kind of opinions about them. And Mm -hmm. I see their strengths and I see their weaknesses. And then we would come to a parent-teacher conference, usually in the first quarter of the year. Mm -hmm. As the teacher, I could ask questions like, I've noticed that your child struggles with, and then give them an example of something that I see in class. Mm -hmm. And the parents could, at that point, could say to me, Yes, we've been working on that. My child has only been home for two years. Mm-hmm. And then that for me fills in the blanks of what I was noticing in class versus them coming to me and telling me, well, my child has a really hard time with this and this and this and this. Because honestly, most of the time until I know the kids as a teacher, a lot of that stuff kind of goes in one ear and out the other because I don't really have a face to associate with those kids yet. Right. You know, I might talk to the parents. I don't really know the kids. So I feel like in most situations, waiting for at least for the first few weeks of school to start Mm -hmm. and then requesting some kind of a parent-teacher conference. If your child has some significant needs that should be addressed ahead of time, like for instance, if your child does better sitting in the front of the classroom Mm -hmm. where the teacher can easily redirect them, then you could say something like that. Hey, we've, we've learned in the past that my child does better when sitting in the front row. And the teacher more than likely is going to accommodate just like they would if someone had vision issues and needed to sit in the front. Right. You know, I mean, that, that's something that's easy enough to accommodate. If you say we've found, we found that my child can focus better if they are closer to the teacher mm-hmm. and less distracted by other kids. Right. So small accommodations like that are, we found that my child does better when they're able to stand up occasionally, mm-hmm. you know, just things that you have, seen that have worked in the past with your kids are small little things, but don't throw a ton of things at the teacher right away because they're not going to be able to remember if they've got 20 kids in a classroom, right. they're, they're not going to remember all these different things for each individual child. I think that it's not, not just important that they won't remember those details, but something you said a few minutes ago is when you just try to front load. And again, parents are doing this in an attempt to help their children succeed at school. Let's make that make sure that's the, the lens that we, we view all of the comments in this episode. But when you preload the teacher with every piece of information because you just want them to understand who your kid is and what your kid's, your kid's specialized needs are, you really run the risk of profiling your child for your teacher. And all of a sudden, because let's be honest, when we do these things, we talk about their behavioral needs. We talk about their trauma history. We talk about mostly the negative parts of the story mm-hmm. right? I mean, for yeah. lack of a better a better term and so 
the teacher's not getting a full picture of who your child is. The teacher is most certainly getting a one-sided view of your child, and that's the child they're expecting in, in the class, and that's the child they're prepared to come to the class. So we have to be very, very careful. Um, and like Kayla said, you know, the, the teacher's going to learn who these kids are, and, and you know the environment. The, the, the teacher may see the same behaviors you're seeing at home. The teacher may see worse behaviors you're seeing at home. The teacher may see better behaviors than mm-hmm. you're seeing at home. Because the environment's different. There are different people in that environment. So I think that it's it's key to just kind of get your kids ready for school and get that chip out of the port and then and then make any adjustments to the sails once we're out on the high seas. I don't even boat, so I don't know why I was using those <laughs> examples, but this made sense to me also. I think it's a, it's almost like a, a catch twenty two in that you you don't want to pre bias the teacher mm-hmm. against your child. But if you share too much information, you're going to do exactly that. Yeah, exactly yeah, right. There's no doubt. No doubt. Because here's, here's the thing we have to remember about teachers. People who become teachers are generally people who love being around children. And by children, I mean teenagers as well. Because they're people who, who go and work in high schools, probably also volunteer at the youth ministry at their church if they go to church. Because they're just drawn and they're wired to be around those people and want to try to influence them. So let's just drop the assumption that the teacher has a negative view of children and assume that the teacher will have a positive view of my child on day one. Because nobody got into teaching for the money, folks. <laughs> so there has to be some kind of calling Amen. to it, right? So let's, let's give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. Let's give our children some room to breathe. And make some adjustments on the fly. Um, well, and our children grow from year to year, too. So while they may have struggled with something in first grade, by mm-hmm. the time they get to second grade, they have matured enough that they can handle it. But you're only remembering what they did in first grade. Right. Yeah. And so it's harder for them. Or when they get to middle school and they're changing classes, that may be just exactly what they need right. to help them to focus because mm-hmm. they get a change of scenery every time. Or it may increase behaviors because they get the change, of, get the change of scenery every time. You just don't know until they start the school year. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it doesn't. It's not going to be the same every year. And so, give them a chance to get started. Get the teachers. Give them a chance to get to know the kids, and then you know, call for that talk with the teacher mm-hmm. or the you know, just just say, hey, I want to have a parent teacher conference um, to just check up on my kids, see how they're doing in class. A lot of schools will actually do a parent-teacher conference usually early on in the year mm-hmm. just to kind of check in. And I think that's, if they don't already do that, then, you know, schedule one. Or if you're seeing they're coming home with, you know, whatever the discipline procedure at school is, they're having, you know, they're getting in trouble a lot, then your teacher's probably going to call a parent-teacher conference anyways. Right. So well, It's important to remember that you're the parent, and that the teacher needs to be your ally. And I think that when we get into these combative situations, you really build a wall between yourself and the teacher, and the teacher's like, we'll see that your name just dropped into their inbox and go, oh, I don't, I don't read that right now. Mm-hmm. But just based purely on the amount of time that your child spends in a school environment, you have to, you have to make sure that the, the, the school teacher... Head, uh, you know, administrator, teacher, administrator, school nurse, all those people um, are on the same team. You know, we talk about how it takes a team. 
And the E in team stands for educational environment. And we do need to come to terms with that. So always, um, like Kayla said, case it in form of a request. Hey, do you have a few minutes for? What's your favorite drink from Sonic? Can I bring it to you? Um, so the teacher understands that, look, I, I just want what's best. So the teacher understands that you as a parent just wants what's best for your child. Um, but you can't make it about everything because you have to, in the classroom environment, you have to pick your battles because if there are 22 kids in the class, there are 22 parents who are all trying to let the teacher know about what would be best for their children, what works best for their children. And so you're never ever going to get all of the behavioral accommodations you want because the, just, it's just impossible. There's just not enough resources to accomplish that goal. So, um, so what I would say to parents is don't ask the teacher to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. Don't ask the teacher or the school to fund something that you're not prepared to fund yourself. So um, here's, an, here's an example. Some years ago, we discovered that um, our oldest daughter, she was really, really struggling with math. So because my wife is a, um, a classroom teacher and a creative one at that, she decided, what if we, instead of sitting on the chair, the bench at the kitchen table, and did our math on the table... What if we sat on a hippity hop ball, you know, like it looks like a yoga ball with the handle that the kids use, right. and did our math on the bench? And so that motion of the hippity hop ball not being able to sit still, it actually had an organizing effect on our daughter because her body needing to focus on her movement in space with the ball being in motion mm-hmm. actually focused her mind and she started doing better on her math. Hmm. And so we contacted her teacher, first grade at the time. Yeah. And said to her, hey, our daughter does much better with her math if she's on the hippity hop ball. Would you allow her to use that in the classroom? And she said, yes, that's not a problem. But then, (laughs) um, because we thought through to the next level, realized, well, okay, well, if we just send a hippity hop ball to class and my daughter's the only person using it, then that really puts a spotlight on her, Mm -hmm. which she doesn't want. Right. So we went back to the teacher and said, hey, can we send like six of them? And then maybe you can let, let her use it and then like rotate it through five other kids. And the kids really loved it. They got the results they wanted out of our daughter. Her math scores improved. And she didn't feel isolated. Um, but we bought six, six hippity hop balls. And I realize that's not a huge investment because they're you know, seven or eight bucks or whatever. Yeah. But um, it's just an example of an accommodation that we asked them to make for our daughter that really helped her. But the accommodation we asked was really, really small. Mm-hmm. If we send the hippity hop balls to class, will you let them sit on it? Not, hey, she does birth hippity hop balls, so you need to buy six hippity hop balls. We don't want our daughter isolated, so you need to buy 20 of the hippity hop balls. Everybody can do the math on the hippity hop ball, which is what the parents do sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if we had approached it like that, there would be no hippity hop balls in that class that year. Right. So what if our children have special needs that don't fall into that small accommodations area? How do we approach uh, teachers and administrators on helping us handle those? So, yeah, you're going to get those kids that have more needs than just a small accommodation. And so what you're going to need to get in place for them is an IEP, an individualized education plan. So in Texas, we call it an ARD meeting. Um, I think other states have different names for it. But basically, 
it's getting your child the accommodations that they need and the teachers are required to do these things. So it's not just a parent requesting it. Mm-hmm. It's an actual plan put in place that they're required to accommodate. Through the school system. Through the school system, okay. right. So this might be that they get extra time to take a test. Or it might be that they get questions read to them on the test. Mm-hmm. Or they go to a special place to take a test. Or it could be that they get to have snacks every two hours. Or they get to have a hall pass to go to the nurse whenever they need it. Or, you know, whatever it is, you can get those written into an IEP so that it's no longer just a parent requesting something, but it's, look, my kid has some more needs that I need addressed, and it might require more than just the teacher to meet those needs. Right. So getting those early on, a lot of parents, I think, are a little bit cautious to do something like that because they don't want to put a label on their child. Right. They don't want their child to stick out or to be different. But the truth is, if our kids have anxiety and they need a break and knowing that they can take a break when they need it to go visit the school counselor or go to the school nurse and get whatever it is that helps them calm, you know, Um, or maybe, I mean, some schools are even getting, you know, things like weighted blankets in the classroom Mm -hmm. um, and the child can get written into their IEP that they can go and sit with a weighted blanket whenever they need to calm down, Mm. you know, so just, just things that might be a little, I mean, it's not going to be just our kids that are going to use these things, right? but it's just, making sure that your child gets those accommodations in class because they're written in a plan. Those are important to get put in place as early as you can for your kids, especially when you're seeing that they're having real difficulties every day at school. If school Mm -hmm. is just a real difficult time for your kids, whether it's anxiety, whether it's sensory needs, whether it's that they just need to eat or drink on a regular basis that's a little more frequent than what the school normally does. We talk a lot, Chris, about how we need to become the world's leading experts in our children. Right. We also need to be our, tr- our children's number one advocate. One of the mistakes a lot of people make is like if there's an issue, if I pretend like there's not an issue, the issue will go away. Mm-hmm. And that is just simply not true. You right. cannot bury your head in the sand. And in Texas... And I'm assuming that, that most states would follow this. If a parent requests these IEP or ARD meetings, the school is required to accommodate that, to schedule that meeting in a reasonable amount of time. Yes. Because sometimes people go, oh, I don't want to fight with the school. Right. I don't, it's not going to matter. So, so I won't do it. Right. Well, the truth of the matter is that you do need to do it. Your child needs you to do it because at some point your child cannot be their own advocate. Right. And at some point that is true because the child can't request the meeting with the school. Mm -hmm. The parent has to. The parent has to. The child can't go to the meeting. The parent has to. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think also some parents think, well, the teacher will say something if they think that we need this. Mm. And they put too much on the schools to request these. But again, when when a teacher has 20 something kids in a classroom, She is managing the day in the classroom. 
and may not say something to you. She may not even think about an accommodation that could be made, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're getting reports on bad behavior, because usually, I mean, we like to say a behavior is a need being expressed in an inappropriate way. Right. Right. So if a child is acting out at school, if they're getting in fights every day, if they are refusing to do their work or whatever it is, there's a reason behind that. It might be that there is a fear of something. It might be that there's an anxiety about something. Maybe they're a perfectionist and they're afraid to write something down and get it wrong. And it looks like they're defying the teacher because they're not doing the work. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember having kids in my class who literally could not start writing a writing assignment until they got home Mm. because there was such anxiety about not writing the right thing down and having to start over or having to erase it that they would rather go home and let their parents help them write it than to start it in class and have to start over when they got home. Mm -hmm. And so it looked like I'm refusing to do the work you've said for me to do. But in reality, it was, I don't want to have to start this over. And I'm afraid I'm not going to put the right thing down when I start writing it. Mm -hmm. So I need somebody to help me. Or one day, one of our kids came home from school and had an awful evening. I mean, just behaviorally was just off the wall. Just everything was, everything made him mad. He did some things that were super inappropriate. And we were like, what is going on with this kid? Well, come to find out they'd had a substitute teacher at school that day. And I had no idea that there was a substitute teacher. And then to make things worse, there was a test. And the first problem on the test, he didn't know how to do. Mm. And so he said, I'm not doing this test. And the substitute teacher, who didn't know him, his classroom teacher would have encouraged him to move to the next problem. But this teacher was like, yes, you're doing this test. Because mm. she didn't really have a relationship. There was no connection right. there. So he's got the anxiety of coming to school and his teacher is not there. Then he's got this test and he looks at it and doesn't know the first problem on there. So the anxiety is high here and he's a perfectionist by nature. So he does not want to write something down unless he knows that he knows that he knows that it's the right answer. Right. And so he refused to do the test. He got a zero on the test. He was sent to the principal's office and I didn't know that any of this had happened because the principal knew me and she kind of just talked to him and, and said, buddy, you know, you got to do your test, you know, and didn't really think she didn't make a big deal about it, knowing mm-hmm. him and his anxiety level. But the substitute teacher didn't, you know, say anything to me either. And so then when we got the test back, I looked at it and I said, buddy, what happened? You didn't answer any of the problems. And he goes, well, I didn't know how to do that problem. And I said, well, let's skip it. Let's do the rest of them. And I had him do the test at home. He Mm. got everything else right. Mm. But when I looked back to the day that that happened, he had had such anxiety about a substitute teacher and not knowing how to do that, that, you know, there, he wasn't able to complete that test. And so I say that all just to say some of our kids have such anxiety about different things that the teacher may may be able to accommodate that, but it may be so much that the teacher needs some help from somewhere else. Right. Yes. I I agree with everything you said, because 
one of the things that we find is that people are very comfortable with fight or flight as a fear response. And we've spoken about this before in a right. previous episode. But this, this, this idea that freeze is a legitimate and very, very real fear response is something that a lot of people struggle with because they don't understand that. And so he froze and she viewed it as defiance. Right. And she pushed yeah. on him and he dug in deeper. And you know, Kayla mentioned he's, he's a perfectionist. Um, I think with the root of that perfectionist, though, is when we talk about how there are the six risk factors that make a hard place and then how the hard places impacts your brain, body, biology, beliefs, and behavior. Well, let's just focus on how it impacts his belief system. Somewhere when he was a young boy, because of the circumstances of his life and the, and the situation that he was, was living in for, for the first few years of his life, he came to believe this narrative. If I can just be good enough, mm-hmm. people will like me, right? And that is the root of perfectionism in children, is this belief system that if they can just get it right, people will like them. If they can just be good enough, people will accept them. If they will just get it right, people won't leave. They won't have to leave. Right. And so her not understanding that that's driving his behavior and he is stuck. He, he literally can't get past the fact that if I don't do the first one, I won't get everything right. Mm-hmm. And he's just stuck there and he's frozen. And that's what happens to our kids a lot. And so, you know, the Institute TCU over the last couple of years has really started doing a lot of work and a couple of years ago Dr. Purvis wrote some stuff on the trauma informed classroom sometime this year they started to do training for teachers uh, because they are really really working on this idea of the trauma informed classroom on this idea of schools understanding what's going on with our kids uh, not just our kids I mean we've spoken about this before you don't have to have spent one minute in foster care to have trauma in your past you don't have to be adopted to have trauma in your past because we can't isolate the children, right? Singling out our children and trying to get special accommodations for their behavior has not worked. So what we really need to do is have the whole school system be trauma-informed. Have the whole school system understand that play is valuable in child development. Right. Right? Some of TCUs work with one of the local school districts. They now have like you have double the amount of time dedicated to recess every day and are seeing better results with the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important. So we talked earlier about when do you talk to your child's teacher, Mm -hmm. but also what do you talk to them about? What do you tell them? I mean, what do you, not only are you going to give them just a snippet of your child's history to kind of help them understand where your child came from, but they probably want to read a little bit about it, but you're not going to like give them a copy of the connected child and go here, (laughs) would you read this in your spare time? You know, because teachers go home and grade papers and then they have their own family and, you know, I mean, they do lesson planning. There's a lot of stuff that happens outside of the classroom for a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so to give them a book and say, here, read this, you know, it's not going to happen. They're going to smile and nod at you like you're crazy. Well, they also look, look at it as you're showing disrespect for their time because I will say as somebody who was married to somebody who taught for over a decade that uh, her first year teaching was also our first year of marriage. And I really felt like I didn't have a wife for nine months of that year because mm-hmm. when we would get home, she would have to grade all of her papers and then she'd have to lesson plan and then she'd be so worn out that <laughs> they'd go to sleep. And there were just some nights I remember sitting in that little apartment we lived in thinking, this is not what I signed up for <laughs> because it's just so much time you have to spend. And you have to understand who your teacher is and you have to be very respectful of that. 
it's a balancing act. It is. You it want is. you want the you want the best possible outcome for your child, but you also need to do that in a way that shows respect for the teacher. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of good resources out there. Um, we'll put some links in the show notes to some little short articles that talk about you know a trauma informed classroom mm. and kind of it gives a brief overview of like what is a hard place. I mean these are these are just you know seven to 10 page documents that the teacher could read easily in, you know, 15, 20 minutes. You know, it's not going to be a heavy read. It's going to take a couple of days. Exactly. And it might be something that the teacher is really interested in and they want more information. And then you can give them a copy of the connected child or another great resource to give them would be like the whole brain child. Mm, Because yeah, that book's not even written for kids from hard places. That's just written from a brain research standpoint about kids and how their brains work. And so those books might be something that the teacher comes back to you later and says, do you have any more resources? I mean, is there something more that I could learn? This was really interesting, right? I know at, for me as a teacher, I learned about all this about halfway through my teaching career and wish I could kind of go back to those first five years and, and look at some of those kids with a little more compassion that were right. driving me crazy. Hmm. You know, once I started learning about it, I began to apply it not just to my children, but I began to apply it to my classroom. And I saw huge results. I mean, I had one kid so sweet, but could not sit still for the life of him. I mean, the poor kid was up and down and fidgeting and banging and tapping and all this kind of stuff. And I know it drove his mom crazy because she's like, I cannot get him to sit still at the dinner table. I can, he just does this and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I had just started learning a little bit about sensory and I said, you know, I'm going to try something in the classroom. And so I ordered like a, you know, a big pack of fidgets, right? They were these like, they look like balloons filled with cornstarch and they have little smiley faces on them and some little yarn hair. So I ordered a huge classroom set of them. And the first day I got them, I put them on all the kids' desks. So they each got a little one on their desk. And I said, this is your little friend that's going to sit on your desk today. You can squeeze them. You can rub on them. You can do whatever you want as long as they stay in your hand or on your desk. They don't fly across the room and hit your neighbor and all that kind of stuff. Setting expectations. Yeah, exactly. Set their expectations right there. What are we supposed to be doing with these balls? And so the first day, everybody, you know, all the, you know, half the little girls had them on their desk as their little friend and they would look petting their hair and stuff. (laughs) Braiding their hair. Yeah, trying to. I mean, they they were, (laughs) they just thought they were the cutest little friends and, and some of the boys kind of looked at them like, what is this? This is dumb. Um, Some of them tried to throw them across the room, you know, a little bit of that. But after a few days of having them, I just put them on my desk and I said, if you want a little friend for your desk, they're sitting here on my desk. I had just a bowl full of them. I said, you can come and get them. And that kid came and got it every single day. And we eventually started having to put his to the side because the poor thing by the end of the first day had no eyeballs, like he'd (laughs) rubbed the face completely off of this thing. And by the end of the second day, it had no hair left on it because he had used it so much. But what I didn't have to do was tell him to stop tapping his fingers on the desk. Mm -hmm. What I didn't have to stop, tell him to do was to stop annoying his neighbor or to sit down in his chair because he had the appropriate 
thing he could use to get some of that energy out Mm -hmm. and to kind of focus his mind. And so he would squish and squeeze on this stress ball. It changed the whole dynamic of the classroom. And it wasn't just him. He was just the one that was the most noticeable. Right. There were lots of kids in the class that benefited from these, but I didn't isolate him and say, I got to do something for this kid. Right. And I did put him in a place where if he needed to stand up, he could stand up. You know, a few years before that, I wouldn't have recognized that. Mm-hmm. I would have just said, that is just a, an annoying kid. Mm-hmm. And why, why can't he sit still? He is just being disobedient. I've asked him 10 times to sit down and he won't sit down. Mm-hmm. I've asked him to stop touching his neighbor. I'm just going to have to send him to the principal's office. And so when I began to look at it in a different way, so you may find that you give your teacher something and they go, oh, I can see, th- I can see how this would work for you know, this student, this student, this student. Right. I want more information. So just if you give them some kind of article, say, I have lots more information I'd love to share with you. If you find this helpful. If this yeah. is helpful to you. you know. We hope we've given you some good ideas and tips on how to approach teachers at the start of the school year or later in the year, depending on your child's needs. I'd like to thank Ryan and Kayla for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Chris. Bye, Chris. Thanks. If you have a question for us that will fit into 140 characters, you may tweet it to us at tapestryibc. If you require a bit more room, you can email us at tapestry at irvingbible.org. You may also find us on Facebook at tapestryibc. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Just search for Tapestry Adoption Podcast. You can also subscribe directly from our website, tapestryministry.org. Thank you for listening.